Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Miss the show? No worries. On point and on the podcast. Do the numbers add up on today's vaccine announcement? You know, we've got so much secrecy around these contracts, it's actually impossible to know. But we will talk to a drug industry watchdog who's very skeptical of what he's hearing. Texas is buried under snow. Millions are without food, water, have no heat or power. Locals are describing it as an Armageddon. We'll talk to one of those locals. And the Trudeau government announcing justice reform to tackle what it calls systemic racism in our justice system. Is this real change or just made to look like change just in time for an election call? Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. A point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. I believe if you gave even the businesses that I know are hard hit and are frustrated uh, a choice between saying you can have a couple of more weeks of uh, restrictions now as opposed to having on some date in May a further lockdown where once again we've been open and we lock things down again, they would say, no, we'll take the, the, the restrictions now if it's going to give us a better chance of getting through this and not having another lockdown. Oh, yeah? Well, I think what businesses will say is that they need those in charge to stop moving the goalposts and using lockdowns as a strategy. Uh, and the snow, of course, just a part of it. It's certainly coming down all over southwestern Ontario right now. Very, very uh, kind of slippery, slidey out there. We can't really complain. We've had it very, very easy so far. I mean, February has just been uh, kind of the only snowy month. Certainly not what is happening in uh, Texas, which is pretty staggering. And my neighbor's from Texas and uh, has family there, and she says this is, like, unprecedented. Normally it would be around 11 degrees right now at this time of year, and now they're buried in snow with more coming. And millions have had, like, no power for days, no water, no heat, food's running out, and people are dying of carbon monoxide poisoning because they're trying to stay warm in their cars. And uh, obviously Texas doesn't have an infrastructure for snow. And my uh, neighbor's daughter um, is describing the scene as Armageddon. Can you imagine? And, of course, what does Ted Cruz do? But, um, you know, he decides to take the kids to Cancun. I mean, what what are you doing, guy? He is expected to be like a, or was, a front runner for president, uh, to run for president. And uh, he can pretty much kiss that one goodbye. You cannot abandon your state in crisis for margaritas in Cancun. So, boy, he's a... Uh, Hightailing it back on a plane right now, but not a good look. i got to be honest. I'm a little surprised that he uh, did that because he, he's normally a, a smarter guy. So I we'll get an update from Texas. significant error in judgment. Slightly. We'll get an update a little later in the show. But let's get the update um, on the crisis here on the ground, and that is when or if businesses will open, and we should get that decision tomorrow. I'm going to play Kreskin here now and predict that businesses will get the short end of the stick again. Premier's made it pretty clear, you know, he only listens to the health experts. And they're the ones making the most noise right now. 
And, um, you know, no one in charge really seems worried about the health effects of these shutdowns. So it's very hard to be optimistic that the uh, businesses around the uh, Toronto and GTA area will get a break because they really, really need one. I mean, they're just being kicked around right now with absolutely no clarity of uh, when, you know, or if they're going to open or, you know, if the goalposts will just keep moving. Just keep going, you know, and the economic hurt is starting to show. We had news from the financial accountability officer revealing that um, Ontario lost 335,000 jobs in 2020 and 765,000 Ontario residents lost hours. And those numbers are going to continue to worsen the longer these businesses shut down because they can't they can't stay like this forever. They just can't. Bankruptcy Canada is now reporting you know, with the aid programs ending and, and loans now coming due, uh, businesses are now just hitting the wall and they're starting to look at the books and saying, look, I, there's no pathway to profitability. So uh, unless something miraculously changes and someone in charge gets their act together, um, you know, tomorrow may just be the deciding factor for some businesses to say, you know what, I'm done. I'm just done. And I really wish we were at a turning point, you know. We wake up to news today, and it sounds like great news on the vaccine front, and it'll get very big headlines. But I think there's a lot of fine print to the numbers, which according to General uh, Danny Fortin, you know, he spoke today saying that there's this new accelerated vaccine schedule. The takeaway here is that combined, we'll have 20, you know, around 23 million vaccines in the spring. So, um you can see that we're now coming out of this uh, period of uh, limited supplies. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now all of a sudden, we're uh, out of this vaccine drought. And uh, by end of July, we're going to get 24 million Canadians vaccinated. And by September, apparently 42 million people are going to get vaccinated. Pardon my skepticism. But that would mean there can be no more delays at all. It would also have to mean that Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, and Novax are all approved. And now the Trudeau government says that they're looking at delaying the second Pfizer shot because apparently they've got data that shows one dose has a high level of protection. So that makes me think that they're basing these numbers on only getting one Pfizer shot into people and delaying that second shot. Because I can't figure out the math on this. They've either picked a miracle out of thin air or they're going the one-shot route, which is not what Pfizer recommends. You're supposed to get the second shot 21 days later. And that's not what other countries are doing. They're all going by the directions on the, on the, on the bottle. So I think these doses are a bit of a peanut and shell game. Of course, you know, we're just guessing all the time. Because there's absolutely zero transparency on vaccines. We cannot figure out or add up what does add up and what doesn't. Because we're, of course, not allowed to see the contracts. There's no way to scrutinize anything that we are told day to day. And the numbers just continually change every day. So it all sounds fantastic. I certainly hope I'm wrong. I really do. Because we need to get vaccinated. But the devil is always in the detail. And we just don't have any. And I'm going to be speaking to a doctor who just happens to be a drug industry watchdog. And earlier this week, he testified in Ottawa at a commons uh, committee about the secrecy behind all these vaccine deals. 
And the word he used on today's numbers, skepticism. And he was being polite. So we'll talk to him because, frankly, um, the secrecy around these things, no one's expecting them to roll out all the juicy details of what's the hidden secret. You know, how did you get the caramel into the chocolate? But we should have basic transparency on delivery dates, accountability measures, what the, you know, delivery dates will be, what the ramifications are if they don't come in. That kind of stuff should all be out there for us. It is not. And so everything's just shrouded in secrecy under the guise that, you know, the vaccine companies will cancel deals if we expose anything. Well, that's just nonsense because a lot of other countries are putting those details out there. So, you know, I'm going to be, I'm cautiously optimistic that, that this is all great news, but I just, I'm too skeptical at this point because I just, I, I just don't buy that there's not an election company coming and that they're not trying to get something in the window to take the headlines in a different direction because it is hurting Trudeau's polling numbers every day that there's a negative story on vaccines. So this will be like, oh, wow, vaccines, great, fantastic. Stay with us here on Point, Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio. The takeaway here is that combined, we'll have 20, you know, around 23 million vaccines in the spring. So um, you can see that we're now coming out of this uh, period of uh, limited supplies. All right. So if the planets align and all goes according to plan, we should or could have 14.5 million people vaccinated between April and June and now told 42 million by end of September. And then you read the small print, and that is if AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, and Novax are approved, or if the two-dose Pfizer shot can be reduced to one. And Justin Trudeau is adamant that Canadians will be vaccinated by September. Of course, we have no way of knowing because we can't get any transparency. There's a lot of secrecy when it comes to how we are getting these vaccines. And earlier this week, there was a committee hearing on the lack of transparency around the vaccine procurement and who's behind it. And those testifying not only point out the failure of, you know, not having domestic production, but also that those making the decisions on this task force, many of whom have conflicts due to the fact that they have direct connections to the vaccine field, but that contracts aren't being made public, so we can't scrutinize them. And it has been made, it has made it impossible to hold companies accountable which could lead to more bad decision-making. Dr. Joel Lechkin is a former York University health professor of policy, also a drug industry watchdog, and you also testified at this committee. Good to have you, sir. Thanks very much. All right. Have, you know, when you, when you hear the numbers that we have heard today, it sounds like great news, but, you know, based on your expertise, do you believe that this 42 million number is true, or do you believe that the numbers are being tinkered with here? So let me just start off by saying that in addition to um, having taught at York University, I'm still an emergency um, department doctor in downtown Toronto. So I'd certainly like to believe the numbers. It would definitely make my work easier. Um, but those numbers, as you pointed out, have a lot of caveats behind them. So we've already seen that Pfizer and Moderna have um, delayed shipments for various reasons. Well, actually, for Moderna, we don't we don't know why they're delayed, um, and will those delay? Will we see delays in the future? Um, that's a, an open question. We don't know specifically what the contracts say about um, deliveries. Are the promising deliver 
numbers of doses by the week, by the month, by the quarter? Um, what are the penalties, if any, associated with not meeting those um, those contractual requirements? Um, all in the dark about that. Um, and with respect to the other three vaccines, um, it's probably likely that they will be approved, but the question is how effective are they going to be? So there are already questions about the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, South Africa was supposed to start mm -hmm. rolling that out, but they've put that on hold because it doesn't seem that that vaccine is terribly effective against the variant that's seen there. And sooner or later, that variant is going to come to Canada. So if that vaccine doesn't work, then whatever number of doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine we're supposed to get aren't really going to um, matter because they won't be used, or if they're used, they won't um, provide us much benefit. So 14 and a half million people by the end of June, maybe. Um, as I said, I'd certainly like to believe it, but um, at this point, I'm somewhat skeptical. Yeah, I mean, it just comes out when we're talking about reducing the two-shot uh, Pfizer down to one shot so we can delay that now. And you think, okay, wait a second, are they basing this now on cutting that dosage in half, which I think begs the question of, you know, why is there so much secrecy? And have you in your, um, you know, your decades of experience ever seen so much secrecy when it comes to such a major health initiative? Um, no, but then again... Um, we're dealing with um, with uh, something that's unprecedented, at least since I've been a doctor, which is um, from the late 70s onward. There hasn't been um, this kind of a major health emergency. Um, so we could, there has, there's a long history of a lack of transparency when it comes to um, what happens in the pharmaceutical um, area. So drug companies don't release all the data that they have. Um, they spin the data so that it looks better than it is. Governments up until recently haven't been releasing data because they regard it as commercially confidential. Um, and those have always been a problem, but they've always also always been a problem in much smaller numbers of people. Um, right now we're with the... Um, COVID pandemic, it affects virtually the entire population in Canada. So at this point, um, transparency and being open is more important than ever. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly when you've got, you know, this lack of trust in, in vaccines, you've got a, a growing number of anti-vaxxers, you know, if you at least give them some transparency and no one expects to give away, you know, the secrets behind the formula. But certainly when it comes to dates of delivery and contractual obligations on the other side, I don't think that is asking uh, too much. But during this committee hearing, you know, and, and there have been questions about this particular task force that was put together very quietly. And it's been pointed out that many you know, have links directly to the vaccine field. And, you know, despite the fact that there were known conflicts of interest, this government deliberately uh, chose to go with them. Uh, they didn't have members of Health Canada on this advisory um, panel. I mean, how problematic is that to you? I mean, to, I mean, to most people, it stinks. But, you know, we're in such an emergency crisis time, it doesn't seem to get any attention. Therefore, it doesn't get questioned. I think that um, you've made some good points. So first of all, 
Um, whether or not the conflict of interest affected the decisions that this uh, committee made, um, there's the perception that they may have. And in this case, perception um, is just as good as or bad mm -hmm. as reality. Um, if people are not confident in the decisions that they're making, that, the, that this um, task force made, then that reinforces um, negative um, feelings about taking the vaccine. Um, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have taken advice from people with conflict, but they could have struck the committee such that the majority of people, and especially the two co-chairs who are heavily conflicted, they could have constructed a committee where the chairs and the majority of people did not have conflict. And then if they thought it was necessary to take advice from people with conflicts, they could have listened to them. But people with conflicts shouldn't have been voting members of the committee. Professor Amir Adaran has been very vocal about this particular issue. He has been writing about it since um, uh, August, and that's when he and I have uh, started talking about vaccine deliveries or failure to deliver. And he testified at this particular committee calling it a, a disaster. How do you assess uh, what is happening and what we're seeing? Um, unfortunately, what we're seeing is a, a pattern with Health Canada and with the federal government in general, and it doesn't matter which, which particular party has been in power, but this is a pattern that's been going on at least as long as I've been looking at the industry, which goes back to the early 1970s. And Health Canada's um, position with respect to the pharmaceutical industry and individual companies has typically been um, to cooperate with these companies um, and sometimes that's a good thing, but there's also the issue that these companies, their primary goal is um, profits and responsibility to their shareholders. The government's primary responsibility should be uh, public health of um, the people of Canada, and often private profits <clears throat> are not the same as um, public health issues. Well, I certainly hope that uh, the announcement today is uh, going to all come as we would hope it would. But nonetheless, um, pardon my skepticism, but I do very much appreciate your expertise and insight into this. Thanks very much. And I share your hopes for the future and your skepticism. There you go. That is Dr. Joel Lechkin joining us, uh, who's got a whole lot of expertise, and we'll have him on again, hopefully. You're listening to On Point on Global News Radio. It was an approach that did not make our communities safer. It did not deter criminals. It did not make the justice system more effective or more fair. Its singular accomplishment has been to incarcerate too many Indigenous people, too many Black people, and too many marginalized Canadians. That is Justice Minister David Lametti, and boy, does it ever smell like we're edging closer to an election as the uh, Trudeau government checks yet another promise off the list. My question is, you know, does their justice reform bill actually fulfill the promise it made to address what they call systemic racism? that plagues our justice system. And the bill table proposes a whole bunch of things, uh, repeal minimum penalties for certain drug crimes, allow for greater use of conditional sentences, things like house arrests or counseling and treatment programs instead of jail, police and judges 
um, and crowns are being asked to give alternative punishments for cases involving things like simple drug charges and also offers lower risk and first-time offenders other opportunities than going to jail. And Lametti stated today that blacks and marginalized communities are more likely to be charged, but the bill that's been tabled, does it actually change that? Or does it just look like that? Let us bring in Joseph Newberger, who is, of course, our Global News Radio legal expert. And is this actual reform, Joe, to you or just checking off an old election promise? I I think this is half checking off an election promise and does not go far enough to address inequities in the criminal justice system, much of which right now I see that the liberal government has imposed on us themselves. Um, So what they're, you know, I'll let you jump in, but this I, I listened to the full speech of the minister, and I'm, I'm a little concerned because although he wants to repeal mandatory minimum sentences for drug offenses and certain firearm offenses, they fall short of eliminating all mandatory minimum sentences and completely restoring conditional sentences. And what they should be doing is eliminating across the board all mandatory minimum sentences, allowing conditional sentences for certain offenses back again, and then allowing judges to have broad discretion to mete out a just and fit sentence free of mandatory minimum sentences according to the facts of the offender. That is not what I'm hearing right now. And I'm hearing pandering to certain elements of our community, which concerns me because there are other people in our community who are also uh, very much marginalized and impacted by sentencing. Right. So in other words, give the judges uh, the, the chance to be discretionary. Chances are they will lean uh, on the lighter end of things anyway, given the way we're moving. But to your point on, on the gun punishments, I mean, two days ago, they sat there saying how tough they are getting on gun crime. And yet it seems like they've reduced punishments for, you know, smaller gun crimes. I mean, this is the one area that they should not be going the other way on. OK, so I'm just going to say two things. One. Leaving discretion to a judge on sentencing does not necessarily mean that a judge will be light. Uh, So I just want to to state that when a judge has discretion to mete out a fit and appropriate sentence, it doesn't mean they'll be light, but they'll be able to take into consideration all of the factors at play. Now, addressing Mm -hmm. your issue about gun crimes, I agree with you 100 percent. We are seeing, uh, you know, an increase in homicides, particularly gun related activity by organized crime. And these need to be addressed through mandatory minimum sentences unless there are extraordinary circumstances, which could be built into the legislation. They are not doing that. And just Mm -hmm. by eliminating certain mandatory minimum sentences for gun offenses, and I get the one off that this judge, uh, that the minister stated, it was before judge where some young man got a four year sentence, which is ridiculous because there could have been a a constitutional exception. Uh, There are other gun crimes where we see very serious offenses being committed where there has to be serious sentencing. I'm not sure this will address that. And I think it's sending mixed messages. That's what worries me. I don't see this as a comprehensive approach. It really troubles me. Okay. The the one thing I thought of was if you're going to knock all these, you know, sentences and charges for things like simple possession, why wouldn't they just go and decriminalize? Like, wouldn't that make no. more sense? Not necessarily. That is a much larger discussion. So if you want to decriminalize certain drug offenses, you need more of a long-term study. There is legitimate uh, evidence to suggest, if we're talking about drug cases, 
uh, where decriminalization um, of drug offenses may actually lead to a safer community, dealing with addiction issues uh, in a much more holistic way, and and getting people out of jail when they shouldn't be there. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. But we need a much more comprehensive approach. This is not going to... We're looking at the wrong end of it. We're looking at it after these people are convicted. You know, where there are people who are addicts and they are subjected to right. this lifestyle through all sorts of vulnerable issues and mental health issues and others, we need to get them out of the system, not after they're convicted. And we need a better approach to looking at uh, drug offenses and dealing with it in a better way so that we can see what needs to be done to decriminalize. But that needs to be done on a cautious approach. I'm a criminal lawyer. I, I understand the arguments on my side, of course, but I also understand the other arguments that we need deterrence in our system to also protect people. This needs to be done in a much more comprehensive manner. I don't yeah. think this, this, this looks like patchwork and it yeah. looks like somehow pandering to certain interest groups. I don't think this is going to go where it needs to go and to solve very systemic issues in our system right now. Right. But again, it's like the gun the gun legislation, they just kind of push through it. It makes to look good, but it does absolutely nothing. And it doesn't actually address the root causes. And if they actually address the root causes in that, you'd probably get a lot of people in marginalized um, and in communities of lower income um, out of jails. I mean, it, they haven't really, they've kind of gone backwards, I think, this week on, on a couple of different things. But, you know, they say it'll allow cops... Um, an option to pursue charges and encourages crowns and judges to pursue other avenues in jail. Well, I mean, I think cops right now have already the power to pursue other charges. My concern would be, what are we going to be now? Is everyone going to get sent to a healing lodge at this point? Because we already know the system is already going more to the lighter sentence and the restorative justice than the actual criminal Ooh. justice. And I, I think that yeah, will not, you know, sit well. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I you know, that's not yeah. what I'm seeing, you know, by way of sentencing. You know, there are some judges who are giving lighter sentences, but I don't see it going in that direction. Um, the reality is what I don't see is a comprehensive approach with some intelligence. That's what I, I, I see is lacking. There's a serious disconnect between policing, prosecution and what we do in the courts. We do not have comprehensive policies. And that's what concerns me, because we have mixed messaging from this government where they the, the government has done incredibly stupid things in relation to our justice system, like removing the right to challenge a juror, preemptory challenges in Bill C-75, which can lead to wrongful convictions. This is not a comprehensive policy. This is not a government that is thinking. They are not thinking and they are not implying intelligence into a justice system if you want to protect the community. If you want to look at root causes of crime, absolutely. I'm all in favor of that. But I don't think they're doing that. When they look at, you know, the assault rifles, I get what they're trying to do, an assault type of of firearms. But again, lawful owners of firearms are not the ones who are committing these crimes between, uh, you know, 12 and Mm -hmm. and 6 a.m. on the streets. There needs to be other areas addressed with respect to infrastructure to policing, uh, preemptive policing so that we can prevent these crimes from happening, addressing the socioeconomic issues, why people get involved in gang activity, that's not what I'm seeing here. I'm seeing the wrong approach. After people are convicted, let's deal with this sentence and put in some sort of principles to help them. We got to go way back and, and look at what are the uh, what's the ideology of this offending. Mm-hmm. And this is not going to make the community safer, in my in my opinion. And I see a very disjointed approach to criminal justice by a liberal government, which has really made massive mistakes with respect to criminal justice 
and can re- and can lead to wrongful convictions. I, I really distrust anything they do. Well, uh, there you go. Um, but hey, we're not Sorry. talking about vaccine failures, and um, nonetheless, oh, we're don't get me started. <laughs> Okay, I won't. I don't have time. (laughs) Joe, I appreciate your insight into this, and uh, we'll see what comes out over the next couple of days. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Alex. Take care. Joe Newberger joining us here. Stay with us here on Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio. What's happening in Texas that is just unprecedented. It's deadly. And normally around this time of year, it'd be uh, 10 degrees Celsius. They are now in a deep freeze being buried in snow, facing another dumping of snow. And over the last few days, millions have been without power. There is a water shortage. Food is running short. And there are reports of people dying of carbon monoxide poisoning because they're trying to stay warm in things like their car. So it's a really desperate situation uh, and becoming clearer by the day. Celia Cole is with Feeding Texas. This is a network of food banks that help out across the state. Celia, thanks for joining us. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. Give us um, a front-hand view, because I think most people kind of hear, all oh, snowing in Texas and kind of might chuckle, but it is coming into clear focus that this is nothing to laugh at, and this has become a really deadly thing. Can you just kind of characterize what what has been going on? Sure. Well, I guess to just put it into sort of perspective, you know, we're a state of roughly 28 million people. And over the last week, close to 3 million people were without power for extended periods, you know, several days. And now about 14 million people are facing some sort of disruption, either no water or having to boil water. So um, it and it's had a huge impact. You know, the roads have been impassable over the last Mm -hmm. five days or so, which has just affected everything. Um, so, yeah, yeah it's nothing like we've ever seen before. Yeah, because you wouldn't have the infrastructure. You're not used to things like ice and that. And so if you're not used to that, you know, you, you, you can't figure it out. But the infrastructure is also not ma- meant for this. Um, you know, my I've got a neighbor who's from Texas and has family there. And she's described the situation, you know, people sleeping in cars to stay warm, people running out of food. There's a, you know, a bit of a, a real panic setting in. Is, is that an accurate uh, picture? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I keep likening it to sort of the early days of the pandemic back in March mm-hmm. where uh, grocery stores, you know, the shelves were bare um, or not even open. In this case, we had uh, most of our major grocery chains have to shut down and then open maybe with reduced hours. And, uh, you know, I went to the grocery store myself today and the shelves are just bare. Um, so, yeah, it has a real sort of apocalyptic feeling to it. Um, and I And we're very worried because there are so many Texans out there that, um, you know, are, are either have been forced out of their homes or living in freezing cold circumstances and uh, their food has gone bad. They're they're losing wages. Um, and so, yeah, it's a very desperate situation for, for really uh, hundreds of thousands of Texans right now. And it's not going to go away within a day or two. I mean, what are we expecting in that area in the next week or so? Yeah, I mean, it just feels, you know, every every day I look at the temperature sort of obsessively and it, it seems like we have about two more nights of, of deep freeze. Um, so mm. I'm really not expecting power to be restored um, until uh, probably Sunday. Um, the roads, you know, they continue to sort of clear and then ice and then clear and then ice. And so I don't think we're going to see, um, you know, the sort of supply chain challenges we've been facing really get any better for the next few days. Um, And then at that point, it's a matter of how long it takes for people to get back on their feet, get back into their homes and start sort of picking up the pieces. 
Yeah, because, of course, then you have to deal with uh, flooding because of burst pipes and all sorts of things that, that happen when the cold sets in and you don't have the infrastructure to to uh, support it. Now, you're in the business of helping people. You work in food banks and, and uh, you know, it, it was hard enough during the pandemic. That's given challenges to everybody across uh, North America, certainly. What are you seeing now? Are you seeing people that are now coming to you that normally wouldn't be using a food bank? And do you have the supply that you need? Yes. Yeah, so we're definitely, uh, you know, we have 21 food banks in our network and collectively they, they managed to provide services in every community of the state. Uh, so that's the good news. But the bad news is that we're seeing increased need everywhere. Um, on top of the increased need we've been experiencing during the pandemic, um, you know, we're serving hundreds of thousands of, of needy Texans in, a, in, in any given month and, and are now going to see that number increase at the same time, you know, our food banks are facing the same supply chain challenges that grocery stores are, you know, food that was supposed to arrive hasn't. Um, and on top of that, we're facing increased needs. So water is, is in short supply right now, ready to eat foods. Several of our food banks are supplying meals to, to shelters, warming shelters mm-hmm. that have been set up mm-hmm. for unhoused people and people who've been forced out of their homes and uh, like I said, it's it's not going to go away just because the power gets ter- gets turned back on. It's, there's going to be, you know, probably several weeks of increased need. Um, and, uh, you know, we're pre- preparing and doing the best we can so that we can be able to meet that need. Yeah, it's really heartbreaking to read the reports, um, you know, with farmers losing, losing livestock because they can't heat their barns. And so they're losing animals. And, uh, you know, it's a, just a chain reaction. And so what kind of help are you getting and what kind of help do you need? What can Canada yeah. do for Texas? Well, I'm glad you mentioned our agricultural sector because it is heartbreaking to see the the yeah. losses that they're facing in terms of their crops. So, um, you know, we are and all sorts of animals. Yeah. That's right. And then just fruits mm-hmm. and vegetables, and you know, yeah. so much, so much loss. It's yeah. really, it's just terrible. Um, so we have set up, um, you know, a donation site, a centralized donation site um, at feedingtexas.org. You can click on the donate button. Um, we then coordinate sort of the, the distribution of those funds out to our food banks based on how many people that they're needing to serve. So it's just one central point for people to to, to send financial contributions, which is helps us the most in these kind of situations. Um, and then we're working with our local and state officials um, to get water. And like I said, those ready to eat foods into our food banks to, to help them with the immediate need. But right now, uh, you know, so this, the financial support is, is critical and, you know, we're grateful to, to the Canadians who are out there wanting to help. Uh, I'll tell you back during hurricane Harvey, which was, you know, the last really major natural disaster that hit Texas, we got a lot of support from from Canada and from Canadians wanting to help. And we're truly grateful for our neighbors, you know, wanting to help uh, us out. I wish we could send our salt trucks and our hydro crews down and, and maybe we can in time. I don't know. We're in our own snowstorm now. I just, uh, you know, reading about this, it really is, is quite heartbreaking. And the concern, I guess, would be, you know, what if uh, crime starts propping up with people getting really desperate? That is a, a chapter that we don't want to see. Well, that's why I think getting, making sure that people are nourished yeah. and fed, yeah. you know, uh, we've seen this through the pandemic. It's one way to sort of at least keep people, uh, their lives together and keeping them resilient throughout these kinds of crises. Food is sort of at the center of all of that. Celia, I thank you so much for joining us. Our hearts and prayers are with you. I know that kind of sounds cliche, but uh, thinking of you guys and of course, uh, you're with Feeding Texas and uh, just praying for better times uh, for you guys. 
Thank you, Alex. We appreciate you. Thank you. That is Celia Cole. If you want to help out, it is feedingtexas.org. Five bucks, two bucks, four bucks, whatever. I know everyone's being asked everything right now, but it is a really heartbreaking situation. And Lord knows uh, they could use a little bit of help. Anything will do. Feedingtexas.org. Stay with us on point. Alex Pearson, Global News Radio. You, of course, can join us live Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp here. I'm Alex Pearson on point, and this is Global News Radio.